You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. It's always a good day when you begin with snow and the gospel choir. Doesn't get much better than that. And I'll be disappointed if I don't see a few snow angels out there, so don't disappoint. These are the words that the Lord has laid on my heart. Lord, receive them. I would like to ask you today, how many followers do you have? How many people do you follow? How many likes do you have from a recent post? How many comments are on your page? Where do you spend most of your social media time? Facebook, Insta, TikTok? (laughs) Not quite sure what it is. Social media is an amazing connector of people, organizations, and ideas. It allows us to celebrate our accomplishments, keep in touch with friends and families, discover new interests, and define what is socially current and relevant. I know you are also aware of the downside of Facebook and other social media platforms. The proclivity to compare, the doubt regarding what is real and what is staged, the search for the evidence of filters and Photoshop edits, the numbness of scrolling over image after image after image, and the ever-present question of adequacy and unsettledness. In every age, society seeks to define how are we to be, who are we to be, how should we look, how should we act, how should we talk. A 2017 survey of facial plastic surgeons found that 55% of surgeons reported seeing patients who requested surgery to improve their appearance in selfies. 31% increase in patients requesting surgery in order to look better online and to look like their filtered self. Beyond concerns with physical appearance, I had a colleague once who in his 30s was becoming increasingly discontent and unsettled. As we talked about it, he lamented that he had not yet done anything significant with his life at age 32. He had a friend who had started a company and was already a millionaire. He had another who was working for an NGO overseas doing significant relief work. His Facebook and Twitter feed were filled with examples of others who appeared to be far more successful than he felt. He was feeling dissatisfied. He did not recognize the impact that his day-to-day work was having on recruiting college students. Over time, his perception that his career lacked value in comparison to others impacted his work, and he chose to move on. For those of you very close to graduation, how many times have you been asked, so what are your plans? What will you do after college? How competitive is your resume? How do you plan to pay for your student debt? If we are not careful, our accomplishments can tend to define us or communicate our worth. We think in increments of completion, high school diploma, college degree, graduate degree, or professional certificate, a five-year life goal plan. These end goals, the fulfillment of a dream, the label, the bragging rights, the perfect reason for another Insta post, can become a driving force, a focal point, the source of being regarded as valuable and worthy. For too much of my young adult life, I lived anticipating that next big thing. 
something out in the future, the next soccer game, the weekend or spring break trip with friends, upcoming marriage, buying a car, first home, first child, presenting my research at a conference, that next upcoming milestone. I would make it through the mundane day to day with anticipation of what was to come down the road. Yet in those days when I felt that I had finally arrived, the next day would come and I would live once again in anticipation of what is and what might come, that next big thing. From picture-perfect events to laudable achievements, we can start to define the value of our lives by how much we like our own image, how good we feel about what we have to post, how full our resume is becoming. Many often define their value by how our lives compare with a contrived version of others that we see online. Yet even among those who would appear and are quite successful, many are suffering from a condition labeled imposter syndrome. The Harvard Business Review defines imposter syndrome as a collection of feelings of inadequacy that persist despite evident success. Imposters suffer from chronic self-doubt and a sense of intellectual fraudulence that override any feeling of success or external proof of their competence. I was at a conference recently with over 300 marketing experts and higher ed leaders. And the presenter asked us to stand if any one of the following phrases applied to us. Number one, I'm afraid people important to me may find out that I'm not as capable as I think I am. I feel my success has been due to some kind of luck. The reason I got my position is because I was in the right place at the right time. I tend to remember the incidents in which I have done my worst more than those times I have done my best. When they were done, we looked around and over 80% of the room was standing up, including myself. We need to remember that it is the daily routines, the primitive tasks, the chronic challenges, the times of uncertainty, missteps and missed opportunities, and noticeable failures that most of true life and true living happens. It's in those moments. We tend to place the carrot out in front, believing that there is a pot of gold at the end of that rainbow, and dream of being the first to cross the finish line as the reward. However, living a life of anticipation for the big post-worthy event can minimize the ever-present, the right-now opportunities, the day-to-day -day experience and authentic moments where God can bestow his love and his grace. So I want to encourage you to pay attention to the little things that are right in front of you every day on a daily basis. Begin to hunger for the everyday moments where God can reveal himself and where you can be God's hand and feet in the world and minister to those around you. It took me far too long to learn that for a Christian, life is to be lived in the moment, in the mundane, in the day-to-day -day circumstances. We must balance that anticipation of what is to come with living in the moment. With attachment to what is now and who is in the now, the one who is and is to come. Living is a process of attachment to Christ and detachment from image management. The relinquishment of this notion that outcomes are a result of our own capabilities, letting go of the perspective that our accumulations define us and validate who we are. To avoid feeling like imposters, there's only one true solution, completeness in Christ. We can ask God to forgive, 
to cleanse, to infill us so that our minds can be centered on him, fully attached to the one who made us and knows us best. He is the giver of dreams, the revealer of purpose. He is the source of wisdom and strength to pursue the plans for which he has fashioned us. God gives us confidence to go in the direction of those dreams, yet he reminds us to pay attention to the steps along the way. Proverbs 14, 15 says, The simple believe anything, but the prudent give thought to their steps. Each of our life paths will be different, even though they are converging here right now at Asbury. Our accomplishments will be different, our titles, our future salaries. We need to spend our lifetime, we will need to spend our lifetime avoiding the temptation to overvalue the extraordinary success and to undervalue ordinary contributions. I want to tell you a story about three courageous and faithful women who listened to the Lord and diligently obeyed. One in particular did not grow weary of doing the little things with humble obedience. She was committed to daily simplicity and faithfulness to routine. The year was 1936 when a woman by the name of Ella Frizee felt led by God to regularly visit a family with a bag of candy in hand. She had to take two buses from where she lived to reach a particular house every Saturday morning. On every visit, Ella was faithful to bring that bag of candy. And to visit with the family and invite them to attend her church. You see, in that house there were five boys, ages between 2 and 12, and they came to know Ella as the candy lady. These boys looked forward to her generous treat each week. You see, money was tight, and getting candy was indeed a treat. After nearly a year of every Saturday faithfully visiting that family, Ella then invited the parents to attend a special week of revival services featuring Estelle Crutcher, an evangelist. Those five boys were the Worcester Five, the five Worcester boys. And their father, James, was my grandfather. Because they felt embarrassed to say no to this special invitation to the revival service, after a year of her kindness, my grandparents accepted the invitation to attend one of the weeknights, the weeknight meetings. My grandfather said, what can happen if I go on a weeknight? So my grandfather, James L. Worcester Sr., went to a revival meeting at the First Church of the Nazarene in Lowell, Massachusetts, and he found out what can happen when you do so. The Holy Spirit spoke to my grandfather, and he gave his heart to Jesus. He had been a chain smoker for 38 years, and God delivered him from that habit. This was not his salvation, he would explain. He only claimed that his desire to give up those coffin nails, the cigarettes, was a result of his newfound relationship with his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the late 1930s, the Reverend Martha Curry was serving as the pastor of the Lowell Church of the Nazarene, and she continued to minister to the Worcester family over their years and their newfound need for discipleship. Before going to heaven, my grandfather often said, I am eternally grateful to Ella, Estelle, and Martha for their faithfulness. Being gloriously saved and also having been delivered from several bad habits, my grandfather wanted everyone else to know the same freedoms that he was enjoying. 
He reflected on the simple faithfulness of the life of the candy lady and how it impacted his life and the life of his family, and he chose to pattern his life after her witness. My grandfather, const my grandfather consistently, constantly bought his meat from a local pig farmer. Over time, he led that pig farmer to the Lord. And at the time, the Nazarene church was down by the Merrimack River in a very small building with very little room to grow. And when the farmer passed away, the church was surprised to discover that he had given all of his acreage to the church. And the Lowell Church of the Nazarene is one of the largest the churches in New England now with a thriving ministry. A simple choice to befriend a farmer for the purpose of sharing Jesus' love led to the local church's ability to fulfill their dream of ministry. Another time as a young boy, I witnessed an example of my grandfather's purposefulness. We pulled into a gas station, and at that time, the attendant came and, and filled the tank for you. And when the attendant came to the, door, came to the door and put the window down to pay, my grandfather said, I won't be able to come to your station anymore. And the attendant was shocked. He said, James, you've been coming regularly. What did we do wrong? And he said, oh, you did nothing wrong, but you're a Christ follower now. It's time for me to go to another gas station and befriend someone else. I will never forget my grandfather's response. Although the attendant was saddened to lose the business and would miss the weekly interactions with my grandfather, he understood that my grandfather was simply being obedient to share the love of Jesus with those who had not yet met him. That was the environment that my father, Tyler Shaw Worcester, grew up in. He was five years old when the candy lady came to his house. Because of her influence to the family, my father grew up regularly attending church, attending a Christian college, received a call to the ministry, and served as a bivocational pastor and a fifth grade math and science teacher. As some of you know, my dad passed away this past September from complications related to Alzheimer's. He was 88 years old. While cleaning out his things, we came across one of his written memories of his, of his own life. And here are a few portions of his words. My dad speaking. Sunday afternoons after church were great. Ma would gather us around and read stories from Hol Holbert's Stories from the Bible, a children's picture book. They were written for children, and Ma was a really good reader. She had taught school in her younger single days and knew how to bring those characters to life. Our whole family attended Sunday school and church. It was there that I learned many Bible verses, stories, numerous choruses, and the old hymns of the church. I love the mixture of choruses and hymns so worshipfully and energetically sung. I always had a liking for singing and for music in general. Music is God's gift to humanity to open the heart to true worship. When I finally let go and let God have control of my life, it was at the age of 17. One of the side benefits was that God put a song in my heart for the Lord, and I often break out in song while doing life's ordinary tasks. I would always hear my dad singing around the house. I worked in the old Lowell Mills as a machinist. It was while at work in this old, oily machine shop on a Tuesday, February 1949, that God really got hold of my heart, an overwhelming sense of his presence assuring me that he loved me and that I could love him. It flowed over me and was as real as anything I had ever experienced at any time and under any circumstance. My heart responded positively, and God forgave me and made me a new person in him. I always knew that God loved others, but deep down inside, I still did not have assurance that God loved me. Despite many attempts up to this point to try and live for Jesus, the devil seemed to win out. God sees your sin in wicked ways and doesn't love you because of it. 
is what I heard the devil saying. I watched others share in God's love, but was blinded by this hopeless feeling. But on that day, in that oily machine shop, what joy, what peace, what love, what blessing, and what fellowship I was experiencing as I accepted God's love. It was hard to explain then, and still is, a wonderful mystery today. At the time of this writing, he says, some 54 or more years later, I still revel in the love, God, the love of God, walk with a spring in my step, a song in my heart, and a praise on my lips. No matter what, I'm going to keep on singing as long as God gives me breath to do so. When I can't even mouth, mouth the words, I will still be singing in my soul. That was the testimony of my father's conversion and his sanctification. And I can tell you that even when Alzheimer's robbed him of cognizant thought and the ability to communicate, all we had to do was begin to sing one of his favorite hymns, and he would join us within just a few words and sing every word loud and clear. He loved his Lord right up till the end. So I am privileged to carry on the legacy of my grandfather and my father, a legacy that began in 1936 when the simple, consistent act of obedience by the candy lady, Ella Frizee, the sacrificial efforts of traveling evangelist Estelle Crutcher, and the consistent wisdom and investment of, of Reverend Pastor Martha Curry. Their simple acts of kindness and obedience changed the trajectory of a family and impacted the world and five generations. So how then shall we live? We shall live as Jesus commanded, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. This living requires attachment and detachment, a willingness to keep company with Jesus going through life with ears open to hearing that still small voice of the Lord, fully tuned in and latched on into his direction. Mark 8, 34 through 35 reads, Jesus said, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You are not in the driver's seat, I am. Don't run from suffering, embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way to saving yourself, your true self. He will teach us to go through life with eyes open to seeing the needs of those around us and press upon us ways to meet that need. We detach from our own opinions and judgments to fully lean on God, on his perspective and his direction. For me, this is the essence of holiness, holiness unto the Lord, the essence of Wesleyan holiness theology. Dr. Ken Collins, professor of historical theology right across the street at Asbury Theological Seminary, he sums up Wesleyan theology in two words. So all those exams and all that studying, two words. Holiness and grace. Not holiness or grace, but together in balance. Wesley's theology is conjunctive, meaning both and, not either or. So let's look at holiness and then we'll look at grace. Holiness is also a conjunctive, a combination of holy and love. Not just love, not just holy, but both. If we simply talk about love without emphasizing holy love, then we are going to engage in sentimentality, filling in with our own desires what we think is good. When we qualify love with holy, holy love, we get the kind of love that Jesus displayed. 
what he demonstrated on the cross, that self-sacrificing love. On the other hand, if we simply focus on being holy, apart from love, then we emphasize purity, isolation, separation, living apart from communion with others, and we can become self-righteous. Being holy needs to be understood in the context of love, and love needs to be understood in the context of being holy. In other words, being holy compels us to be set apart for God, but love compels us to be embracing, going out into the world, seeking communion with others. Holiness and grace. Let's look at grace. Grace is also a conjunctive and is best understood as free grace or cooperant grace. Free grace implies that God can and does work in the world totally on his own, without any help, any interaction, totally on his own. An example of the work of God alone is seen in creation as God brought humanity into existence. Justification and the new birth is another example where God bestows his grace upon us, the free grace of God. But free grace alone, without an understanding of cooperative grace, does not compel us to action. We can sit idly by just waiting for God to bestow his grace. Cooperant grace implies that the Christian life is marked by relationship, by cooperation with God. The danger of cooperant grace by itself is that we can fall into the trap of thinking that we, that works, that we live by works and that works are the means of the grace. So for Wesley, it was twofold. And in Wesley's own words, first God worketh in you, therefore you can work. Otherwise, it would be impossible. So God must work first. Wesley goes on, but second, God worketh in you, therefore you must work. Unless we respond to God through worship, prayer, and service to others, we are not living in relationship with God. A relationship with God is transformative. Wesley understood that the work of grace as both unmerited favor, free grace, and also transformation through the Holy Spirit, we are inwardly changed so that we can begin to have the mind of Christ centered on love. So what am I trying to emphasize here? Simply that we need to have both, holiness and grace. Holiness is that tension, that balance between setting our lives apart for God while still living in community with others. And grace is that tension, a balance between the unearned and unmerited gift of redemption and the resulting relationship with God that is then empowered by the infilling of the Holy Spirit, which then compels us to works and to action in the world. So how then shall we live? I think we saw an example of that in the life of my grandfather. Through his simple acts of kindness and desire for connection, we are compelled to do good works, but not to earn God's grace, but to be a conduit and a means of grace to others. Let's look at Christ himself. He was the ultimate example. From the time that Jesus began his public ministry, he had one goal in mind. Show them the love of the Father. Jesus showed by example. Luke 8 tells us that Jesus was walking through the crowded streets on his way to the house of Jairus, whose 12-year-old daughter was dying. A woman came up from behind and touched just the fringe of his garment, and Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out of me. She had been living with a difficult medical condition. Although he was being jostled by the crowd and was on his way to see the dying child, Jesus noticed her touched, and he stopped. He paused, and he said to the woman, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. According to Luke 19, when Jesus was passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem, he noticed Zacchaeus up in the tree, and he stopped. 
Luke, Matthew, and Mark each record the time when Jesus rebuked the disciples for not letting the little children come unto him. He worried about the crowd getting hungry and took the little boy's lunch and multiplied it, noticing that those around him were hungry. While Jesus was teaching in the temple in Jerusalem, he noticed the widow drop two small coins into the offering. And he paused to call attention to the significance of that because it was all that she had. Jesus also demonstrated the need to take time to pause, to seek times of quiet and solitude, to detach in order to be fully aware of God. Jesus sought sought solitude to prepare for a major task. After Jesus was baptized, he spent 40 days praying in the wilderness and then began his public ministry. Jesus sought solitude to work through heartache and grief. After Jesus learned that his cousin John the Baptist had been beheaded, he went away by himself. Before making an important decision early in his ministry, Jesus spent the whole night in prayer and then the next day named the 12 disciples. Jesus sought solitude to recharge after a hard task. He had sent the 12 disciples out to minister, and when they returned, he encouraged them to get away from the crowd, and they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, as recorded in Mark. Jesus sought solitude in times of distress. Hours before he was to be arrested, he went to the Mount of Olives and went a short distance away to pray. Intriguingly, current research into optimizing creativity and enhancing creative thought suggests that solitude and times of quietness are the most effective. Esther Bullholtz, the psychiatrist and the author of The Call of Solitude, she concluded in her research that solitude is an important and normal part of human existence, and it is essential for our best creative work. Neil McClatchy published his findings in the, applied, the journal Applied Cognitive Psychology. In their study, they set out to critically examine the claim that background music enhances creativity. Their results state, we found strong evidence of impaired performance when playing background music in comparison to quiet background conditions. Scripture also reminds us of the mindfulness of the moments to pursue our call. Matthew 6.34, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day as its own trouble. Hebrews 13.5, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Ephesians 5, 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. 1 Chronicles 16. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. So Jesus did three things. He listened and observed. He took time to be quiet and to pray. And he responded to the needs of those around him. One last example. When we look back on the life of someone who did indeed accomplish great things in their life, we find this prayer recorded in Psalms 27. I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is all I seek to live in the house of the Lord for all the days of my life, seeing the Lord's beauty and constantly adoring his temple. Who prayed this prayer? King David. 
King David accomplished big things in his lifetime. He slew a giant, conquered nations, ruled a dynasty. I'm sure his, his success far surpassed his dreams when he was a shepherd boy. Yet, when all was said and done, his burning desire was to enjoy the presence of his Lord. So in closing, listen to portions of the Psalm of David. And may this be your prayer. God, investigate my life. Get all the facts firsthand. I'm an open book to you. Even from a distance, you know what I'm thinking. You know when I leave and when I get back. I'm never out of your sight. You know everything I'm going to say before I start the first sentence. I look behind me and you're there, then up ahead and you're there too. Your reassuring presence coming and going. This is too much, too wonderful. I can't take it all in. Oh, let me rise in the morning and live always with you. Investigate my life, O oh Lord. Find out everything about me. Cross-examine me and test me. Get a clear picture of what I'm about. See for yourself whether I've done anything wrong, then guide me on the road to eternal life, one day at a time, one moment at a time, with eyes wide open to the hurting around us and the needs around us.